This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. So this week we have a special thing. Um, we've got a journalist on, Todd Miller. Uh, Tony uh, couldn't make it to that conversation, but um, I had a great conversation with him. And he's one of the premier journalists on border control around the world. He's written four books on this. And his latest book is called Empire of Borders, um, which is about how the U.S. form of border control has been exported around the world. And I had a great conversation with him and hope you like it. Can't wait to listen. Okay, we are very happy to have on Todd Miller today. Um, real pleasure. Um, Todd Miller, for those of you who don't know, um, is a journalist who works on borders, um, and he's written uh, what's turned out to be a trilogy of books on this. Um, uh, the first one is Border Patrol Nation, another one that deals with um, the climate crisis vis-a-vis -vis border control um, is Storming the Wall. And his latest book is called Empire of Borders, um, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world. Um, so, Todd, thank you so much for coming on. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. So um, I want to get right to this. Is, this is um, a really interesting book, and I, want, I have a million questions. But my first question is a sort of broader question, um, is that, you know, how did you get into the journalism of border control? Um, was it journalism first and then you went to borders or uh you know it's kind of a chicken and the egg question or i know you live near a border zone uh was that in your mind and you thought maybe there should be more journalistic work on this yeah good that's a very good question like how does one become a border <laughs> a border <laughs> journalist uh um i was just up at a conference uh a border, a borders and border wall conference that happens biannually in montreal just uh last week and uh i was called a border journalist <laughs> and how did i become that that's not right? a thing. so that's yeah. yeah i guess so <laughs> um yeah for me i i actually came to the border first um and now it's been many 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 years ago uh i arrived um uh, to the border. I was actually grew up in the Buffalo, New York area. So grew up along the northern border, but mm -hmm. I came to the southern border where I live now. I live in Tucson, Arizona, um, more than two decades ago. Uh, and I really went there because it was it was right after I had a, a year living in Mexico and living in Mexico. And really, I could tell you all about it, but I'll tell you one thing about it. And that's basically that I really developed a, a, a keen perspective of seeing the United States outside of its borders and from, from the perspectives of people outside of its borders. And that really, really brought me to, uh, um, it really brought great interest in what was going on at the border. And it was, I was really following that interest um, that uh, when I first arrived in Southern Arizona and Really, from 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 the point I got to Southern Arizona, I became involved in in a number of different things. I got a, I eventually got a job with um with an organization that do, is a binational organization that did, that does educational delegations that looks at border issues called Borderlinks, and that was I I got that job pre, uh, right before two thousand one or before right before I should say September eleventh two thousand one mm -hmm. maybe uh, 
I was hired there two months <laughs> before wow. that. And then I worked at this job right on the border for the four years. So I really saw the transition very firsthand because I crossed the border probably three, three to four times a week. Um, the first, so I saw firsthand that transition from pre 9-11, pre Department of Homeland Security mm -hmm. border to the post Department of Homeland Security border. And during that time, I, of course, started writing for many just small publications, uh, writing, um, journal, uh, doing, doing little articles and, and also essays, um, about what I was seeing on the border. And, um, that eventually broadened and I eventually started getting published in bigger outlets. Um, I got a, uh, a job at NACLA or I started writing a column, column, I should say at NACLA, which is the North American Congress on Latin America, which basically a publication that focuses on Latin America. But I was uh, writing on the border for quite a while, and then I started expanding my repertoire from there. From there, in and publishing in many um, different outlets, and uh, and then um, I wrote my first book based on based on the the those articles, um, and my first book was called Border Patrol Nation, like you mentioned, um, and uh, and that I, when I wrote Border Patrol Nation, I should say I didn't expect to be writing. Uh, you know, a trilogy of books. Mm -hmm. I actually even have another another book that's 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 um that's a meditation on all those years on on, on writing um writing all these books on the border. I did not expect to to um to to do this to um to be writing all these books, but it's it's amazing. When I wrote Border Patrol Nation, I was basically looking at the post nine eleven, um like the expansion of the post 9-11 apparatus, uh, mm. the post 9-11 border apparatus. And, you know, I write, finish writing this, whatever, 260 page book, which of course I go really deep into a lot of these aspects of the border. And I come out with more, <laughs> more, questions, more questions. It's a telltale so, sign of a good book. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. So that's, I'm still in those questions. I'm still in those questions. Right. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, well, that makes sense. I mean, um, and so speaking from a historical perspective, and which is, you know, you bring a lot of that to your journalism as well. Um, there's, I guess there's like an argument. Um, it's kind of almost like the same argument with Trumpism um, is like, is it a rupture? Or is it just like accentuated more of the same? Right? Um, and, and with with regard to uh, U.S. border policy, uh, certainly, um, let's say since 24 with the advent of the Border Patrol and, and stuff like that and, you know, um, ethno-racial quota system until the 60s and all that, um, that there has been scrutiny um, first on the northern border to stop Chinese migration and then to the southern border to manage Latin American migration. Um, could you, like, just describe, you know, first of all, is it your view that 9-11 is kind of like a major hinge and there is a moment of rupture and things are quite different, even though you have like the Clinton administration and administrations before being quite aggressive, if you like, on the border um, or not? Or, or is it like more like, oh, this is they're doing what they always wanted to do sort of thing? Yeah, that's, that's such good 
Good questions there. Um, nine, the, so 9-11, um, you know, I tend to view it as, uh, it's signi- as a significant date for mm-hmm. sure when considering the border and because the deep formation of DHS and Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Um, but when, when you look at it, you're right. You know, when you look at the, the decade before... 9-11 or you know when you look at pretty much the the clinton years mm-hmm. um and you look at the the implementation on the u.s mexico border of course um uh in the caribbean this this it, the kind of deterrent policies or deterrent strategy that you see um on the u.s mexico border was being implemented already being implemented in the caribbean there's some really good literature on that um, but, uh, but, uh, for our, for our purposes and mm-hmm. keep it simple, um, that, you know, you look at what I consider, um, the, a really important date with border, with the border is 1994 and I, the 1994, um, because that that's the year that the border patrol memorandum came out calling for this deterrent system, the, 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 why, where they say that the you know, that cross, crossing the border could become a mortal danger for people by uh, blocking off urban areas. Uh, by blocking off, of course, we know what that means now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, increasing border patrol agents, of course, uh, was a big part of it. But then constructing wall and other infrastructure, including technology, um, all of that has been, you know, been hugely important when we talk about the borders. So the whole idea of mm-hmm. deterrence, and that's why I think it's so important to note today right is because i think that strategy is what had it started in 94 on the u.s mexico border but it just built off it since then and to this to this day right and that's building making it more difficult for people to cross uh more and more people are going through the desert more and more people are crossing through rivers i mean they just had the announced for 2022 the number of remains that border patrol um or the people that border patrol uh, um, calculated, and I say I want to stress the border patrol because they're notoriously undercount. Mm. The number of people who have died crossing the border, um, it was uh, I think it was eight hundred and fifty three people, uh, which is a record. It was not it no it never be this. So we're topping. We have more people dying crossing the border and getting absolutely zero press attention um, than than um, ever before. And you have to look at this deterrence policy that's been about making people go into dangerous areas since 1994. So you have that, mm-hmm. and you look at from 94. So I like to look from 94. Of course, everything, like you said, we, we can go back to 1924, right. or the, the border, creation of the Border Patrol, all that stuff. But 1994, I think the implementation of this policy, and then you see the budgets just starting to go up. I mean, when you look at the, the INS budgets, was, which is the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which was pre-DHS and what the Clinton administration was dealing with, was using under, um, you see the budgets just going up higher than they've ever gone before. And you mm-hmm. see the the Clinton administration doubled the Border Patrol, started building walls in, in places like Nogales and Brownsville and San Diego. And then, um, and, uh, and so this is all happening when 9-11 happened, right? So 9-11 happens and, and it's, and you have this whole huge, massive uh, 
undertaking with the Department of Homeland Security. Um, the the putting of the counterterror mission, you know, on the top as a priority mission of CBP, of ICE and DHS. Mm-hmm. And but you see the strategy of deterrence remain pretty much the same, at least on the on the in, you know domestically, right on right. the borders, and um and so 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 what what really I see in that in those terms is like the opening of the faucets of the budgets. So if anyone, any of your anybody listening, can go look at the DHS budgets and just watch how they skyrocket post nine eleven, you see for you with your own eyes. You know, rhetoric aside, just look at the budgets. They tell the story. And I think at the beginning of the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, there was a like a $4.5 billion budget for for border and immigration enforcement. By the end, it was $15 billion. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, that... Yeah. And then it just keeps increasing and increasing and increases the through the Obama years. And it, by the time Trump takes office, there's $20 billion. So you can see that as... Of course, Trump is different, but also a continuation, right? And then by the time Biden takes office, it's $25 billion. And then next year, I think it's supposed to be $26 billion. So it just keeps increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing. Right. This is something that I've always been kind of interested in why, like what is propelling this, Um, you know, because if you look at it, you know, there's this... um, uh, book by a political scientist out of Berkeley um, called uh, Walled States and Waning Sovereignty. Um, and in this book, she makes the argument that you would think after the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, uh, and at that time, I think she counts 15 fortified zones around the world um, that we would sort of now consider sort of fortified DMZs, that sort of thing. Um, that there would be a sort of an end to wall building. But then when the book was published in 2014, there was 80 uh, militarized sort of border areas. And so if the if it's the case then that you have like the, the global threat of communism's over, right? And like, like that's, that's gone. Um, and, and then there's supposed to be a sort of, you know, an empire of free trade, uh, which would then sort of, suggest there would be less walls and less, you know, uh, building. And her thesis is that there's a sort of anxiety amongst political elites because because of sort of the facts on the ground of globalization, that they're holding on to a sort of 19th century and prior idea of sovereignty, that where there's a sort of a hermetically sealed state that, you know, can like control everything that's going on and, you know, borders are impermeable. You know, we know that has never existed, but it's this sort of ideal type that's sort of um, the basis of their anxiety. Um, I'm wondering what, what what your take is on that. You know, you've been around the world. You've seen all these different border zones. You've talked to all these people. What do you think? Is it, is it sort of really contextual? It's like in this case, it's, you know, it's it's because of this and this very sort of particular, you know, history and, and political fight. Um, or is it a sort of more global trend that has uh, connections? Yeah, I think, I mean, probably it's I, when you look at it, it's ultimately both, right? Mm-hmm. There's going to be like context, it's going to be, the borders are going to develop contextually to each different individual place. And I definitely have seen that. Um, but part of the part of what I've looked into quite extensively is the global um, aspect of it. 
so you have like the both dynamics um i it, when you're when you were um speaking i i really started to remember um for my uh book empire of borders uh part of the research i went to an international summit on borders at um in washington dc i believe it was 2018 yeah it was june of 2018 so it was a very interesting time mm -hmm. if you remember June of 2018, mm -hmm. family separations, right. you know, there was, the border was in the news. And so I was there and at the summit, um, and CBP was pretty much in charge of it, Customs and Border Protection. And it was all about like the internationalization of the border. And there was about 48 different countries there from all over the place from the, from like, I think Brazil was there, um, Mex Mexican officials, Canadian officials, all kinds of uh, countries represented from Europe and Asia and the Middle East and Africa as well. And so you had um, just a, a 48 different countries. And, and I just remember like listening, you know, um, and um, well, there's all kinds of like realizations that I had at this summit, just being there and reporting on it and hearing it coming from you know the officials themselves, but there was a there was a the uh, uh, the homeland security official uh, um, secretary from Australia got up to speak and in a nutshell he he started saying well we thought that in 1989 um, that there would be prosperity would I think he said would go to the edges of the world mm. and then and then they're like now we're realizing that we were wrong we didn't understand the misery um or so, I, I forget i'm paraphrasing mm -hmm. what he said um but his conclusion was like there's a mis there's a misery underneath that needs to be controlled and and needs to be managed or right. i can't remember his exact words but those that was the, the spirit of it and the conclusion was why haven't we been harmonizing our borders why mm -hmm. and um his whole thing was we have it took us a long time to learn this um we, and now we're at a place where countries are are learning that we need to bring our border systems together and they kept using the that specific word harmonize mm -hmm. harmonize so the united states and australia and the european union and all these different countries would harmonize their borders so they basically have similar border systems probably mm -hmm. have similar strategies would have about open communication and then you know and probably to simplify too much but maybe not you know like showing uh, a sort of global border um that's more than you know just the u.s mexico border where you have this 700 mile long wall and the 2000 mile border with all the, the 21,000 border patrol agents and the you know billions of dollars of technologies but that's one part of this bigger apparatus mm -hmm. that that goes around the entire world and you have um these different countries that are working and not working against each other but rather working with each other right and and then the borders themselves seem to be aimed at what the what the um australian homeland security official called the misery mm -hmm. which you could then look okay the, the poor of the world yeah. is that what he means or right. you know what what does he mean by that so could be all the people that are coming across the mediterranean all the people coming across the mexico guatemala border for example all the people coming uh, over the u.s mexico southern border people going 
you know, all over the world. And then the externalization, not only of the, the actual territorial borders of like the U.S., but it's externalization that goes out or the externalization of the European borders or or uh, working with with other countries to to sort of build or extend, as the U.S. officials say, their zone of security. And so I see that I see that's what's happening. It's a big global um, trend that's forming a global border, but in each place, they're distinct, right? Mm-hmm. Like the 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 wall, the seven hundred miles of wall on the U.S. Mexico border and walls and barriers, I should say, um, looks a lot different from the Mexico border with Guatemala, right, where there's no wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, if people can cross the Suchiate River. Um, from Guatemala to Mexico without anyone saying anything, right on a raft. But so, like, so you see, you go in the archives, you see a U.S. officials down there going, "People are crossing the border. Mm-hmm. What's going on?" But then, if you actually look at a little bit further in southern Mexico, there, there's like a five-mile buffer zone within the country. But then the gauntlet of checkpoints starts. So if somebody tries to go in further north from there, from like say Tapachula to Arriaga, which is a place where people will go catch the train in southern Mexico in the state of Chiapas. You have to go through, to, every time I've done that, it's a gauntlet of checkpoints. Or you've done, you have to go through 10 to 15 checkpoints just wow. to get there. So it, so it, it's not the same as the U.S.-Mexico, but, but it's, in a way, it is the same, right? People end up walking around, people go and end up circumventing the checkpoints, end up in very dangerous and precarious p- places, end up going on the train, at, at least during certain eras, which is very dangerous, um, end up walking, you know, so you have the kind of deterrent strategy mm-hmm. that's exported, but then tailored to specific areas, I would I would argue, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's that chapter in your in Empire of Borders where you talk about how this form of border control produces this global caste system, um, where wherein you know the the caste is obviously it's it's about the management of global poverty or misery, as this official was talking about, right? And that that might be even political um, um, in dissatisfaction, um, but certainly often socioeconomic. Um, one of the things that and there's this other chapter that really struck me in the book that when you were talking about. Um, the sort of colonial origins of border making, the sort of the modern state forms of border making, right? Um, and talking about Africa and the Berlin Conference and so on. And so I'm wondering, this is like the world we're living in, right? Like it's the world we've inherited, it's the world we live, it's like the very official world, right? Like this is like the legitimate world. Um, and it seems like, you know, the, the crux of your argument seems to be is like, this is like, a European colonial ploy of extraterritoriality, right? That what you get to do is make your law go into other zones. Like, you know, like the French had their zones in China and, you know, the British had Hong Kong where only British law applies to British nationals and stuff like that. And effectively what's being done is that that model is being foisted on the globe. And if you don't have it, you're like, you might be a failed state. You might be, um, you know, you're not really sovereign. And and it becomes a sort of metric for legitimacy. Um, Is that is that kind of um, one of the outcomes and what the U.S. is pushing when it's like pushing like this is our form of border border control and you should do it? 
I think so. Yeah, I hate to. I mean, it's it's definitely it, everything's always evolving and changing, and 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 the tactics, I guess, are changing. But it's like I think you know, like your the example of the Berlin Conference in Afri- in Africa, right, and how like the eighteen eighty three conference of European powers, mm-hmm. no Africans invited, right, and sliced up the African continent and um into like those territories and and then when independence happened which of course you know happened in in different times but pretty much around the same era mm-hmm. you know in like the 60s we'll say and right. and um the african countries that that came out of the independence came out of the same shape they're the same shapes that were the demar- demarcated territories by the berlin conference and and really like for me it it became you know, going to going to places. I mean, you could go at. I mean, you, I see it here on the southern border in Mexico with Mexico, the Tanatan people, where the border just divided everyone. You know, just went right through the Tanatan uh, traditional lands. So, um, but but I didn't realize before this book how common that was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in in southern Kenya, the Maasai um, people that were in the southern Kenya, how that that border with the Berlin Conference, the the it just sliced right through the Maasai. So there's Maasai in Tanzania, Maasai in in um in Kenya, and then I remember talking to a Maasai elder or one of the people I interviewed for the book, and he said, you know, it's it's an egregious uh, human rights violation about this border that I went to and I saw it wasn't like the U.S. Mexico border with a wall and technology and border patrol agents. It was just a monument. But even without anything, even um, the way that it, because it demarcated, it just sliced through where, you know, where people traditionally were united mm-hmm. in, in the, for, uh, for, in this case, for the English, <laughs> right? And then, then you know, how then, I, I guess you'd argue it's neocolonialism, right? Mm-hmm. In, uh, in, in the state it is now. But it, it made it, it, it divided people that would uh, would uh, would be like united politically like to work for a political um so so the kind of um colonial infrastructure i guess you could say it, the colonial infrastructure mm-hmm. of borders um that was put into place helps quote unquote helps i should say mm-hmm. um control or maintain or manage the world that we live in now right in the 21st century um if you go back to the idea of harmonizing borders um if you go like to this idea that um you know with all the different factors going on from you know the economic globalization um who's getting what who's getting what natural resources and where's that being taken from and where who's getting it right Mm -hmm. to um the increasing impacts of climate and and who's it it's most affecting um and you and you just see you know like this this world the scaffolding you could call it right the well i think i i would almost like the scaffolding of the status quo if you look at the global border system how it, how it works it's like a scaffolding to keep the world systems in place um as they are whether it be this destruction of the environment whether it be like the rich getting richer the poor getting poorer um or all the different the you know the war sort of 
economy that's that's happening and the wars that where they happen and who they happen against mm -hmm. right um and then who's displaced and and that's sort of like being able to manage uh these you know displacement and and um seems to be like i don't know it, it seems to be very very from this colonial foundation a neo-colonial system that um it keeps things how they are even and this is what i argue in the book too that it, these things as they are is are completely unsustainable so mm -hmm. what's going to happen going forward right right yeah i mean they're like fundamentally conservative in the literal sense because they're about sort of preserving a, a certain type of order right um the I'm glad you brought up the Maasai because that brings me to my last question, which is what you raised in the the conclusion. Um, and so, you know, the inevitable sort of counter argument is that, oh, you know, a borderless world is lunacy, right? You know, like that that's, you know, that's just a sort of pipe dream. And, um, you know, the there's been sort of irrevocable change in the modern era that then demands um, some sort of border system because that's just the sort of the way the world is is laid out um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Maasai view of, of the alternative view of borders not necessarily an erasure but like a different sort of theorization of it yeah to, yeah the that um you know interviewing the Maasai about borders and learning about borders from that it was so and i and you know going into the going before i went to southern kenya i mean i've been like as ensconced in the border stuff for so many so long mm -hmm. and to feel like my learning curve going straight up like <laughs> listening just sitting with maasai elders you know around the fire and uh and hearing just like different ways of of seeing borders but the main the main thing that I took out of it was the negotiation of borders mm. uh, and then how borders are changeable, right? Like the idea of a static fixed border is means uh, is ludicrous. It's mm. ridiculous, especially with things constantly changing, landscapes changing. Um, the, the Maasai themselves are pastoralists in a lot of ways, so they're mm. um, nomadic. And so the idea of like being confined to certain areas um uh goes against the basic way of life right mm -hmm. and 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 in in the climate like the like like if there's uh places that are experiencing drought they always have a place that's not you know they'll save spots um that that like will have vegetation and grass and and um they'll be able to go to those different places because you know, it, the way that like land is managed is, but my point is, is that you look at it in terms of negotiated borders. So when you think of borders, they're not imposed. There's not one side saying this is a border and this is, has to be in this authoritarian, like you have to do this, you can't cross this line or this or this or this happens. It's more like you come to terms with another people or in the terms of the Messiah with the, the living earth around you itself. Right. And they, um, like they gave up a, a really good example of, um, of or there was a Messiah encampment and there was an elephant with, with, um, uh, a, a couple small children, I think. 
And the elephant at night would keep coming into the camp and eating from the trees. And so so they t- they told me about negotiating a boundary with the elephant. And in this in this case they understood the context was that the elephant the mother couldn't move around because they had a she had a small child. One of the children was very mm-hmm. small. And so they wanted to stay there. So what they did was say, "Okay, fine. You can come into the camp at night." But only during the night and during the day we keep the boundary. And and that's like it was like a negotiated boundary mm-hmm. that made sense and worked with this particular situation. So in this in this case it was about learning about context, right? Mm-hmm. Learning about what was going on in that in that moment. Like as as, you know, cattle ran you know, cattle pastoralists, you know, going from place to place, understanding drought, like if there's a certain place that's not getting rain. Well, then you move to another place for, until, you know, that that's sort of being able to negotiate where to go and where not to go and, and the constant, constantly evolving landscape of it. To me, um, if you think about it and that just offers, it doesn't offer a world without borders. It's not mm-hmm. a borderless world, right? It's a world that understands that boundaries are necessary at times and, and important and, um, but it also understands that boundaries are nego- should be negotiable, and and nego- and if we're thinking of peoples between people, uh, and so if one side is saying another that another side has to abide by the rules of this border, then it's not a negotiable border. It's not a negotiated border. Mm-hmm. And then I think this is a quote from the book that that's what they said is colonialism mm-hmm. if it's imposed. But the idea of negotiated borders means, you know, that they're there and um, they can be, there's a creativity to them and there's a respect to both, both whatever who's on the side. There's not this othering. Um, it's more like, okay, we need to do this here and you need to do that there. So let's just agree on this for now and maybe right. it will change next week or next year or next month or in 10 years. But that, you know, to me, like that sort of thing just seems, I don't know, it seems like it's it's definitely, you know, right now we're, you know, the world is kind of conditioned to think that these borders are necessary, that Mm -hmm. these static borders, it's almost it's almost comical to look at a map and know more about where how the where borders are, international boundaries are compared to like great mountain ranges and rivers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But it's a good challenge to like think, oh, maybe this could be done another way. And maybe, you know, and I, and I think this actually with the climate crisis and the thing, the challenges we have before us in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, maybe we, we need, we're going to have to, before we're going to be forced to begin to think of things differently. So it's about time to start, you know, thinking uh, different ways about borders. And I think maybe the Maasai offer one alternative that Mm -hmm. people could think about. Yeah. Yeah. I was really just struck by that, that whole passage. Um, And, you know, the, the idea of a sort of static border, um, you know, in the end, with the states that we have, like, how could a static border not end up being kind of basically conceived as a military front, right? It's it's a sort of territorial line that must be defended, right? That 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 they sort of have this intrinsic tendency to then sort of manifest as you know f- uh, f- 
a fortress. Um, and like this other model of like boundaries based on social utility just makes like so much sense, you know, um, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I, 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 I really like the end of the book because there's like, oh, these are, this is like a very different way of thinking that actually puts that argument about a fantasy borderless world to bed to a certain extent, right? Um, and, you know, there's, there's debates that one can have about that, right? About whether, you know, maybe there should be a borderless world and so on. But, but, but in terms of like a, a practical application of thinking about borders being impermanent and flexible, um, that's, uh, it's just, uh, it, was, it was kind of mind blowing for me. I was like, oh, this, is, this, this, this does not appear in like any of the scholarly literature or anything like that. It's a very different way of thinking, but it's like really useful. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we're running out of time. So I just want to thank you so much for uh, making the time for your work. I'm a big fan of your work. I've read all your books. Um, I've uh, taught a couple of your books. I'm teaching your book. I'm teaching Empire Borders next semester. Um, so it's a great treat to have you on. Thank you. It's my, really my pleasure to be on. It was, it's a pleasure to talk about all these things.